Welcome to Harlow on Healthcare. I'm David Harlow, and I invite you to join me by my virtual hearth as I sit down with healthcare leaders to discuss building the future of healthcare. Today, my guest is Stephen Williams, MD, PhD, Chief Medical Officer of Somalogic. Somalogic is a global leader in proteomics. And we're going to discuss today what exactly we mean when we say proteomics and how that connects to the future of healthcare. Steve, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks. Good to be here. For starters, for those of us who are not steeped in the work, could you give us the quote unquote 30,000 foot view or definition of proteomics? How does this relate to uh, genomics, which some of us may think is related, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Thanks, yeah. I'd like to think of an analogy with the internet here, that the proteomics is the large-scale measurement of thousands of proteins at once. But the, the, um, the internet analogy is that the protein network patterns have evolved to transmit, transmit information from one biological system to another, for example. They're the targets of 95% of all known drugs. So the patterns in these proteins represent an information source. So to bounce back to the analogy with the internet, um, that proteomics is actually trying to decode the meaning of these patterns. Um, measuring thousands of proteins and thousands of people to try and relate these different measurements to uh, health states or future risks or the impact of behaviors. So that's what I think proteomics is really. It's, um, it's the, the potentially the, the most, the world's best information source, single information source about human health. Great. And I think in the course of our conversation, We'll be doing a little bit of buzzword bingo, and people can get out their cards. And uh, we may be talking about clinical informatics, bioinformatics, predictive analytics, uh, AI, and predictive medicine, risk assessments. As we dig into it, I'd like to understand the current relationship, if you will, between proteomics and precision medicine? Yeah, well, I think precision medicine is really the idea that uh, can you tell if an individual actually needs any kind of medical intervention at all? That's question one. Two is, if they do, what is it? And three is, if you did something, did they get better or worse or did it or did it change? So those three pieces of precision, if you like, are, I think, what makes up precision medicine. Now, usually, when we think of genetics, we tend to think of a lot of the, you know, particularly in cancer, it's should this person have a particular class of drug or not, depending on what their mutation is. But there are other measurements that are, exist today that we use in medicine that, that are actually, we might not think of as precision medicine, but they are cholesterol, blood pressure, they tell us, does someone need treatment and did it work? And so they're answering two of the three questions. And I think what we're trying to do is to answer all of those things and to choose a source of information that helps us do, do every one of the three things. And so I think I'd differentiate then again to keep on the momentum around genetics and, and, and why proteomics might offer something complementary. 
that um, if you take 100 people and you did genetic screening on them, there would on average be about four people that would have an actionable genetic mutation. And then maybe there's a fifth person in the room who might be pregnant and they would benefit from prenatal screening. And, and there might be a sixth person in the room who unfortunately might have cancer and they might benefit from genetic profiling of their tumor. But that leaves 94 people in the room where the way we think of today of genetic-based precision medicine, it doesn't have anything to say. And does that mean that those 94 people are completely healthy and there's nothing going on that they wouldn't benefit from answering one of these three questions? I don't think so. So when I look at the opportunity there in precision medicine, I think that there's a lot that's left, um, even though genetics has had some wonderful successes. Um, there's a lot left for most of us, uh, most of the time, who are going to die of something else that's not genetic. So what you're describing is a, is a much broader, much larger uh, data set, so to speak, with, within each of us in the proteome, if that's the right way of thinking about it. So I guess the question from my perspective or, or others might be, do we know enough about the proteins in our bodies to understand which of them are predictive of something, which of them are indicative of something? Where are we on the pathway, if you will, in terms of understanding what, what's, what's the actionable data and what's the noise? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the way I'll start is by saying we actually don't understand how protein network patterns work, but we can search for them. And back to the internet analogy, if you think if protein patterns are the internet, the first thing you need is bandwidth. And that's really what we think of as proteomics, that, that even though when you go to the doctor, you, a lot of the blood tests you might have are, are proteins, they're one at a time. So that's like using zeros and ones or the telegraph. It's not going to get you um, very far in interrogating the internet. But when you start being able to measure thousands of proteins at once, at scale in thousands of people, now you have bandwidth. But it's not enough, is it? You, uh, those of us who remember the old dial-up modems and the noises they make, we couldn't possibly interpret what those noises were. So to find out what those patterns are or what they might do, you need a search engine. And that's where high-powered computing and machine learning comes in. So the way we discover a pattern that might relate to a health state is we um, obtain blood samples from maybe thousands of people. But the key point is that they have to have some kind of clinical truth that's already known. Um, so thanks to you know, government sponsorship and National Institute of Health here and the Medical Research Council and the UK government and so on, there are actually quite large sets of samples with really high quality clinical data. So you know what happened to a person in the future. What disease did they develop? How bad was it? What was it? Um, and you, so you have a blood sample and a clinical truth that you don't have to wait for because it's already known. So then when you go searching for that, if you measure those thousands of proteins in all of those samples, you can use machine learning, you know, mathematical algorithms, that tries to relate the truth, which we know, to the thousands of proteins that we measured. And so in the end, what machine learning does is to connect the two, and it gives us an equation 
that might have uh, 27 proteins in it, or might have 50 or 100. And what the equation does is it says this group of, of proteins in this pattern, in this relationship, mimic or predict the clinical truth. The interesting thing about your question was about understanding is I don't know why the machine learning chooses those proteins. Now, of course, afterwards, we can go back into them and then we can say, oh, well, actually, I think this one was chosen because of this reason or that one was chosen because of that reason. But our right. ability we're, we're is... Sort of thinking about thinking about is this correlation or causation, right? Yes, and sometimes it doesn't matter. So is that what we care about the most is if we can predict the, the truth, the clinical truth, or the current health state better than anything else, then actually, we, do we really need to know why the equation works? Um, and um, so as a, as a human physiologist, it's actually a little, it's, it's, it's been difficult to kind of let go of the concept yeah, of biology. Scary. Yeah, right, letting go. Uh -huh. Yeah, so you have to kind of realize that actually, when we use machine learning, it's not looking at one protein at a time, it's looking at relationships in multidimensional space. So actually, we might not, no, ever be able to understand in our limited human functions as to what, why these patterns exist. Um, but causation does matter. If you're developing a new drug and you want to know, is this particular protein going to, um, uh, if I block it, is it going to help their condition? So in some situations, causation matters. But in other situations, it doesn't. In one of the most famous heart proteins, many of your listeners will know, troponin, it's not causal. It's a downstream effect of heart damage. If you blocked troponin or you developed a troponin antagonist, you'd probably kill people. But it's a really useful measure. So they don't have to be causal to be useful measures of current health or future risk. So that's interesting. As you're speaking, I'm thinking also about the, the notion of explainable AI, right? And that's a topic of interest these days. What I hear you saying is that Maybe this is not exactly the same question, but, but as you said before, we need to let go or you need to be able to let go and not worry about why it's right, but it is, it is right. Yes, a little bit, although we can, uh, again, as a physiologist, I can't resist looking at what yeah, the proteins sure. are and what they do. And we can say, oh, yeah, out of these 50 proteins, you know, these are involved in immunology and these are involved in inflammation and these are involved in clotting and these are involved in whatever. So you can, you can create a story which gives you a nice warm feeling inside, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the reason why the machine picked them. Okay. So developing these insights and then translating them into the clinical sphere, how does that work and how has SomaLogic advanced that question? Yeah, this translatability, this how do you develop a test that is robust to different variations in humans, different ethnic groups, different geographies, different ways the blood was collected. Typically, from my history in academia, if you want to learn human physiology, you find a beautifully collected, pure set of data where the only difference between group A and group B is the condition that you're interested in. The trouble with that is you're not learning about other variations, confounding variables that exist if you were to develop a product like that and then to take it out into the real world, it would fail. 
And what machine learning allows us to do is actually to correct for some of those causes of variation. So instead of training on a pure, beautifully clean sample set, if we actually train on, you know, might call it a dirty sample set, it's one that contains people from different areas, different qualities of samples, different ethnic groups, by including all of those possible sources of confounding variation into your training set, you actually let, enable the machine learning to find those confounding variables and to build in correction factors. So often we find proteins that are in the models that are nothing to do with the target physiology, but they might be to do with age or sex. And they're enabling the machine, if you like, to find correction factors and enable the model to perform across all of these different groups. So I think that, that that's taken us quite a long time to learn how do you make really robust models, not just one that worked the first time you train in a lab. Sort of bioinformatics, people tend to call that overfitting. You make a model that beautifully fits the samples you trained it on, and then you take it somewhere else, and it doesn't work. So to avoid overfitting, if you include these variables up front, then you might sacrifice a little bit of your headline performance, but when you go and apply it somewhere else, it still works. And so we've built in, we know what proteins are affected by food, we know which ones are affected by how badly the blood was treated before it was processed. And because we know those things, we can we can actually eliminate susceptible proteins from the models that we develop so that they do end up being translatable and robust into real-world practice. And so now we've got, I think the count, the current count is about 16 different tests, each one of which is a, a group of proteins. Altogether, they use about 1,000 proteins. The, the, the platform today measures 7,000 proteins at once. So there's plenty of spare real estate there for future tests. But each one of those has been taken through this process of training, independent validation, testing for robustness to sample quality and age and sex and ethnic differences and so on. But we've had to learn how to do that at scale. If you're just tuning in, this is Harlow on Healthcare, coming to you on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm David Harlow, and my guest today is Stephen Williams, Chief Medical Officer of Somalogic. Steve, so you, you describe a platform that can accommodate testing for 7,000 proteins. You're using 1,000 proteins in the tests that you're looking at right now. Are there more than 7,000 proteins that we know of in the proteome? There are. We think that genes encode for about 20,000 different proteins. So we're measuring today about a third of the proteome, and we're developing you know, the platform to measure about half of it. So we'll have a 10,000 plex available at some point next year. And so it will keep on advancing. And what's interesting is that when we look across the generations of the assay that we've developed, starting out when I joined something like 800 proteins, and it was 1,000, then it was 1,200, 1,300, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, and 7,000. When we look at what proteins machine learning chooses, I say that machine learning chooses because it's agnostic. It doesn't have any favorites that it read about in the literature. It's just a ruthless information-seeking algorithm. And so it's only choosing the proteins which are the most biologically informative. And what we've seen as we've increased the size of the assay is that 
machine learning keeps on choosing new content, it's just as likely, to, proportionately likely to choose new as old. So, so far, at least, the, uh, the new content that we've added in every generation is just as likely to be the most biologically informative you know, content as, as the old content. It wasn't that we were so great at guessing in the first place that the first round of choices was better than anything else. It just turns out that you add things and it doesn't matter whether they're mentioned in the literature or not. They get chosen. So in these early rounds, there are a number of tests that you've developed. And I understand that uh, work that's out there now is focused in the cardiac realm. I wonder if we could sort of dive into the current practical applications a little bit. Yeah, we focused in on cardiometabolic health because we wanted to look for precision medicine in conditions that were serious and common and where interventions already exist, but there's maybe a matching problem of giving the right treatment to the right person or any treatment to a particular person or actually getting them to understand that maybe they need treatment. And so cardiometabolic health is a good one because it, you know, well, unfortunately, it kills more people than anybody else. But the nice thing is that actually lots of interventions do exist. There are cardioprotective agents out there. So that's why we, we focused on that. And then some of the world's largest data sets have beautifully adjudicated cardiovascular outcomes. So we've been able to look at our cardiovascular risk test so far in about 40,000 people in 12 clinical trials, none of which we had to run because they already existed. So those are the reasons why we chose it. The applications we're interested in are ones where precision medicine could make a difference. And I'll give you a particular example is, so in diabetes in the past few years, there have been some great new developments in cardioprotection, GLP-1 agonist drugs and SGLT-2 inhibitor drugs. They were interestingly both developed to improve diabetic control. But during the large efficacy studies that were carried out by the different pharma companies, it turned out that they were unexpectedly, both classes of these drugs were cardioprotective in slightly different ways to one another, which we won't go into, but they save lives by improving cardiovascular outcomes. Not expected. Now, the issue with those drugs today is that, yeah, there are eligibility guidelines and so on, but the uptake's been pretty poor. And part of the reason for that is that it's not like cholesterol and blood pressure. For cholesterol and blood pressure, you can measure those things and you can determine, does someone have unresolved risk due to one of those mechanisms and you can treat them. For people with diabetes, there are no really reliable observable differences between people who have a large amount of unresolved cardiovascular risk and people who don't. So that's where we think we can come in by this this risk predictor that we have that is about twice as good in terms of stratifying people into high and low risk as existing risk factors. And we think that applying that to people who are eligible for these drugs but who are not on them, turns out that typically in a health system only about 10% of eligible people are on them, that we'll actually be able to identify people with unresolved risk. And in the high group, which is about a third of the people with diabetes, those risks that we find, we find a group of people with absolutely catastrophic risks. And what I mean by that is that the observed event rate in our high-risk group, which is about a third, is about one in two. 
and the average time to event is about 18 months, and the commonest type of event is death. So we're finding a group of people who invisibly had catastrophically high risks, and so those are the people who would get the most benefit from these new classes of drug, and those are the people who ought to be most persuadable to actually take something that they don't necessarily feel that they need. So that's an example of a kind of precision medicine problem that could be solved by a more accurate uh, enhanced stratifying uh, from the proteomic pattern. And where are you in terms of actually applying that clinically in the real world? So at the moment, with all those 16 tests I mentioned are all being used in healthcare uh, in one way or another. The cardiovascular risk test specifically and this application of it is we have three clinical utility studies that are ongoing where we are we're actually running a randomized control study where half the people get the information from the SOMA scan, a cardio DM prognostic test, and the other half don't. They're not informed until the end of the study. And we're looking at whether we can help the physicians achieve risk-concordant prescribing. So what's the prescription rate in the high-risk group versus the low-risk group? And this can be a win-win for patients because the low-risk patients don't need another drug. They don't need one that gives them side effects without much benefit. It's good for the insurers because they only really want to pay for drugs that, that match the neediest people. And it's good for the physicians in terms of helping them understand, you know, resolve this problem of, of, of who needs what. So we've got those three studies ongoing and they'll read out sometime next year. We had an in silico study where we recruited 250 physicians and used some simulated patients to ask them, would they change their prescribing habits if they had this kind of risk prediction, and it turned out that they, they said they would, but that was an in silico study. So I think we're well on the way to actually proving the utility in practice. Very interesting. I'm curious to hear whether you see a greater opportunity for using tools such as these in an environment where we're moving towards greater utilization of telemedicine. Uh, we saw a huge spike in use of telemedicine towards the beginning of the pandemic that sort of flattened out now. Is there a relationship between remote visits and the value of these tests or, or not necessarily? Well, I think there is. I didn't yet go into what the 16 tests we have are, but I'll give you an, a brief overview. So we have this cardiovascular risk predictor. But, but also running on the, from the same blood sample on the same platform, if physicians want these tests, we have other results. So is this person drinking more alcohol than the current guidelines? Are they smoking? What's their liver fat, their visceral fat, their lean muscle mass, their resting energy rate? Are their kidneys on a poor trajectory for you know, future deterioration? All of those can be measured from the same blood test. And so thinking about this as an enabler of distributed medicine, it's not simply you know, a poor substitute for the laying on of hands. Actually, many of these measures are superior to some of the things that could be done in the office. So I think in the future, as this scales, the enabling telemedicine and giving a true holistic view of the whole person and different health states, different risks, I think the proteome will be a, an enabler of that. 
So I'll turn to the reimbursement question. And it sounds like there's research that's ongoing, but are any of these tests currently reimbursed by third-party payers? No, at the moment, that holistic or liquid health check, if you like, is only being used by uh, concierge physicians in a, in a kind of cash pay setting. So mm-hmm. it's it's yet to become reimbursed. But we're quite hopeful that the the things I described about utility. So we have this huge data set of 40,000 people in 12 clinical trials showing the accuracy of the test, proving that it's better than the best available alternatives. Then we have the do physicians say they will act, which is the, the, the in silico study. Then we have the three ongoing studies, which I talked about in diabetes, which are do physicians actually act to create risk concordant prescribing. And then in addition to that, we're going to run samples from uh, one of the drug companies that develop these cardioprotective drugs. We're going to do an, a, a blinded run of their pivotal outcome study where we can randomly predict who should have received their drug and we can look at the outcomes in those people so that we don't actually have to commission a new outcome study we can prove from existing data that if you apply the risk stratification up front and if you only gave the drug to those people who needed it the most they would have the best outcomes so we put those together and we're just also beginning to talk to the FDA and it turns into a pretty compelling reimbursement package that will have most of those things will have some time later next year. Great. So looking a little further into the future, I'd like to wrap up by asking you, if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself five years in the future, what's one thing in healthcare that you would hope or maybe expect to find has changed drastically? Well, it's hard limiting it to one thing because what I didn't talk about is that a lot of researchers are using this platform to find out more about different diseases and identify new drug targets. So it would be exciting to see some new drug targets identified in this way. And then drug developers are using it to improve the efficiency of and productivity of drug development. But I still think it's what we talked about a minute ago, this democratization of health, actually enabling not just telemedicine, but actually enabling people to understand their own health states, all from a simple blood test that they could send off in the mail. I think that would be the most exciting thing. I've had mine done because we have an employee SomaScan program. And it's quite different being on the receiving end of these tests compared to seeing reports or the theory. It's a, it's a stunning um, uh, assessment of your own health that, that we're all finding is really helping to change our own lifestyle activities and maybe adherence to medications. So I think that's the exciting thing is actually getting it out there into telemedicine and then even after that into consumers' hands. Well, thank you for sharing this exciting future. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Well, thank you. You have been listening to Harlow on Healthcare. Join us at healthcarenowradio.com. Let's continue the conversation on building the future of healthcare together at hashtag Harlow on HC. I'm David Harlow, keeping the fire going and holding a seat open for you until next time. <laughs>